playing that specifically so that you could hear it, so that you could have those words. As we've started this new year, we've started with a focus on the telling yourself the truth. We tell ourselves lies all the time. We look in the mirror, we tell ourselves lies. We hear things from other people and we internalize it as lies. And we want you to hear the truth. And that song ended with just an absolutely beautiful uh, set of phrases that you can run through your head again and again. You are holy. You are righteous. You are one of the redeemed, set apart, a brand new heart. You are free indeed. And if you had nothing else that you were going to take from today, if you could have that, and you could hear that, and you could play that again in your head, that would be fantastic. As we start, again, I want you to learn to tell yourself the truth. And so today we have a new phrase that you're going to need to say out loud so that you can hear yourself say it, okay? This is the truth. Tell yourself this. I And you think, well, didn't Jesus say that? And he said that about himself? Yes, he did. But in Matthew 5, 14, he was describing us. And he said, you, you are the light of the world. And a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. So when you think that you're lousy and you're not doing anything right and you don't make a difference, Jesus himself, when he was thinking of you, said, you are the light of the world. Tell yourself the truth about in the same way is that our faith has a starting point. We, we, we can't track it back that far usually. And so we wanted um, to add, we're taking the idea of a base camp because we say that we're on this road trip together. That's what we describe our life as right now. We're on a road trip together in earnest pursuit of Jesus. So that's what we're trying to do. And so a base camp we're trying to make, we're trying to set up this place that as we travel, we can come back to. This is a place of stability and support. And so um, our base camp is a place if you want to restart your faith or start your faith, we're going to try and bring out some of the basics. So that's what we're doing. It's our basics that we're doing. So we're going to add this starting point into our base camp so that uh, it's something that we can come back to as we need to, as life happens and we become unsure of where we stand. It's also where we can direct some other people so that they can get some of the basics of Christianity, some of the basics of faith, um, and, and from a, more of an adult perspective and less of, less of a child's perspective. <clears throat> okay, so if you have faith in God, or you used to have faith in God, or a God, the name that your God had isn't really important at this place. There was a point when you started to have that faith. And as children, many of us were handed a faith framework. And you sort of go, here it is, this is the system that's already set up. And we were told, there is a God, and he's kind of like this, and here's how you read, and here's how you pray, and, and you need to know that God is good, and that God answers prayers, and God punishes evil and rewards good, and God speaks. That childhood framework of faith is what many of us grew up with. Whether it was distinctly Christian or not, again, really not the point right now. That is a faith framework. And, and maybe you were given it by a, a religious institution that you attended, your temple, your uh, synagogue, your church, um, or, or maybe it was by your parents, or maybe it was like a religious person who you talked to, or maybe it was a counselor at camp, somebody like that. They put this stuff there for you, and you had it. Or maybe you're one of those people who were, you were interested, and so you sort of dove in, and you started wanting to build yourself a framework of faith. And those are the pieces that quite often come in. But then something interesting happens. You become an adult. And then without warning, 
you start to notice that there was a space between what you had been taught about God and what you experienced. And you didn't know exactly what to do with that. And so if you grew up in a Christian tradition, you were taught, and you probably sang that Jesus loves the little children of the world. And you might have sang it better than that, which wouldn't have been hard to imagine. But then as an adult, you look around, and you saw that some children, well, they didn't seem to get loved by Jesus very much. And you weren't sure what to do with that. And you heard and someone told you that God heals. And you prayed. And you asked for God to heal some people. And, and, and they weren't healed. And you were told that God answers prayer. But you have a memory that God didn't answer Auntie Elizabeth's prayer. And he didn't answer your daddy's prayer about your mama. And you didn't mean to. You didn't plan for it to be this way. You weren't angrily charging off. But over the time, the pressures of your, uh, the, the childhood faith that you had, that, that strength that was there began to diminish under the pressures of adulthood. And that, that faith foundation that you started with, it just couldn't support the rigors of adulthood. Consequently, without noticing it, in that process, you drifted away. You never chose to quit believing at all. There wasn't a day that said, that's it, never again. But you chose to stop believing some of it. And as you did that, the rest of it kind of got fuzzy. And the fuzzier it got, the less significant it seemed. And you woke up one day, and you didn't, you didn't really notice that you weren't really connected anymore. But you did notice that when asked, well, none of it really just seemed all that important, frankly. So in this series, we're trying to talk about that. We're building the base camp. We're hitting the restart button. We're building that place that we can come back to so that we might reconnect with faith on more of an adult level. So we started with the idea that the Bible says is not an adequate starting place or returning place for most adults. The truth is that there are all kinds of reasons why the Bible says what it says. But our entry level of understanding what the Bible is and what the Bible is not it also causes us problems because we never really looked into that either. So we're going to try and build a place where we might be able to grow to where we see the Bible as an authoritative instructor. We're just not going to assume it as we begin. We're going to work towards it. That's the point. We're building in steps to go in that direction. It can also give us some tricky spots because you've probably been in a place where there's a preacher kind of guy up there and he says, well, the Bible says... And you go, okay, maybe I can, I can kind of give you that one. But, but you know what else? The Bible also says, and what do you do with that? And how do you put those things together? And so that's why we said last week, the Bible says was never intended to be the starting point for the Christian faith. And so we focused on this for a bunch last week. And so if you weren't here or you, you don't, you weren't paying attention, <laughs> whatever, you want to go back and hear this again, go and check out the podcast, because what we're going to do over the next weeks is building. There are blocks that we're going to put in place, and we're kind of going to assume some of those other ones. So check it out on the podcast. You can get it at iTunes, just search up Into One, or on our website under the tab called Media, you'll find the podcast there, and you can listen in, and you can catch up and stay right with us. So we said that we don't need to start with the idea that the Bible says. 
Because no one who was a, a first century Christian had a Bible to read, right? And then there was the question, well, if, if, if that's not the starting point, then what is? And the starting point for Christianity is not, is the Bible true? It's a valid and important question, and then we're going to go there. But it's not the starting point, and it's not the first one. The starting point, that, that big question that we added into our base camp survival kit last week was the starting thing that you need to get, that you need to wrestle with, that you need to be able to process. Who is Jesus? And in a few weeks, we're going to come back to that question because I, I, I'm not just trying to give it to you. We're going to work towards that. So until that point, you work on it on your own. Who is Jesus? What difference does it make? In a few weeks... We come back, and we're going to build on all these things that I'm mentioning, but today we're starting somewhere else. Today we're going to talk about a word, and this is a word that pops up in religious conversations all the time, not just Christian, it's a religious kind of word. This is a word that will come up if you are interested at all in the pursuit of Jesus or figuring stuff out. Today, the word of the day is sin. Yeah. It's always a big clap for that word, right? We're all excited. Oh, I'm so glad I came for the Sin Sunday. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, that, that's a word that our culture has sort of uh, left in existence, but it's put it into being oh, almost purely theological. It's not an everyday word. It's a God-related word. And you, you wouldn't say, hey, kids, come here. You just sinned against your mother. And you, well, you might want to say that, but we don't use it within that context. When, when you're at work, it doesn't come up in the office. Um, step into the office, Doreen. Yes, it's appraisal time. Well, it seems here that you've been doing a fair amount of sinning down there in HR. We don't, we don't have an evaluation that looks like that. The police don't pull you over to the side of the road and say, do you have any idea how much you were sinning back there? We don't talk like that. It's a theological word, and so we separate it out. But no matter what religion you came from, the concept exists. We stray from this word. We don't like it because it sounds so heavy. I sin. And when we say that, it, we feel like we're saying, I'm toast. I'm done. It's all over. I failed. There's no hope. Giant exclamation point at the end. It's all over. And it doesn't make us feel good. And don't kid yourselves, we are a feel-good culture. If it doesn't feel good, it can't be true, right? When you say, I've sinned, it doesn't leave you with any wiggle room. There's no opportunity to sort of spin this in a new direction. There's, there's no spot to blame somebody else for it. It's not about trying to make this somebody else's fault. Sin is when you look in the mirror and you say, there's the problem. I've sinned. So because we're good at making things easier on ourselves and we're trying to update the language, we don't want it to sound so ancient and out of date, so we don't say sin, and we've replaced it with something else. And we replaced it with, it's just a terrible word. We shouldn't use it like this at all. It doesn't come anywhere close to the gravity and the weight of sin, which is kind of why we chose this word. So we chose this other thing so we don't feel so bad. Because this word doesn't feel so judgmental, and it certainly doesn't feel condemning. We replace the word sin with the word mistake. And we've watched this many times. You know you've seen this. There's television. There's some politician who's up there, and he's behind like 
38 microphones, right? And there's flashes going off all over the place because everyone's been waiting for this moment. And he's reading from a prepared statement. And then he confesses to a mistake. And you hear the story and you go, he destroyed your family. You ruined your marriage. You ruined your reputation. You hurt the city. You hurt the country. Yes, I've made some mistakes. And you're sitting there watching this, and you look at the person who's watching it with you, and you say, that's not a mistake, man. I don't know what it is. I don't know what you call it, but it's way bigger than a mistake. A mistake is something you make on a geography test. A mistake is something that I make whenever I do my taxes. A mistake is when you get off the wrong exit on the highway. Buddy, what you did, that's way bigger than a mistake. We use the word mistake so that we can diminish the consequences and diminish the responsibilities. We don't like the sound of sin. So if we were all to come in here and there was no context today and we all just uh, came in and I didn't tell you what we were talking about and I was to ask, how many of you have made some mistakes in your past? I think like everybody would put up their hand, right? And you probably smile as you remember some of those stories. Oh, yeah, that was a little bit awkward. Everybody makes mistakes, right? Nobody's perfect. But then if we all came in, there's no context again, and I said to you, how many of you have sinned in your past? Well, the whole room changes, right? We start to kind of look around over our shoulders. Who else? Well, I know she sins, so uh, see if she puts her hand up. What's everybody else doing? And it, the, the, the faces are more serious. It's not a joke anymore. There's more nervousness, and there's the fear of judgment. And we well, it really wasn't that bad, right? And the idea of mistake that we use is insufficient knowledge. I didn't realize what I was doing. I had no idea that over time those were the consequences, and this is where that, that would... That, that that is where this would lead. But we know the truth. We don't like it, but we know it. We have used the term mistake when it had nothing to do with insufficient knowledge. You knew exactly what you were doing. The truth is, truth is that sometimes we make mistakes on purpose. Isn't it true that some of those things that you call mistakes, you did on purpose? Imagine that politician, again, who's confessing to a four-year-long mistake. Can you make a mistake for four years? Well, yeah, but if it's a mistake, it's bigger than just a mistake. Sometimes we plan our mistakes. What do you call a mistake that you plan ahead for? I bet that there's somebody here who has purchased plane tickets to facilitate a mistake. Some of you have a stash of mistakes hidden at your house for later. Some of you have already planned your next mistake. What do you call that? And then we make the same mistakes over and over. What do you call a mistake that you make over and over? What do you call a person who makes the same mistakes over and over? The, the, the word mistake just doesn't seem to cut it. We say it in passing to diminish it so that we don't have to spend time considering it. 
but it's worse than a mistake. What do you do with a mistake? Tell me, what do you do when you make a mistake? What do you do? You starts with C. Give me the word that I want, okay? You correct it. It's a mistake, I'll correct it. You, you, you all had it, right? There's only one right answer, all right? You all made a mistake, but it's okay. We can correct it. The word mistake just doesn't quite cut it, but you, you, you correct the mistake. So you say, I'll fix that. I'll correct that. I'll turn the car around and I'll get off at the, ne- at the correct exit. But you can't correct you. And you're the problem. I'm the problem. It's not that we make mistakes because you can correct a mistake. The problem is me. The problem is you. You have had a really hard time correcting you. So what do you call that? So I want to add another question. Put this in our base camp survival kit as well. Here's our base camp question of the day. Why am I not able to do what I know I should do? Why do I resist embracing the fact that I might have a sin problem? You've tried to fix you. Your husband tried to fix you. You've watched it as you tried to fix your kids. Your parents tried to fix you. But you keep doing the same things over and over. The truth is that some of you have blown up a marriage because you are not correctable. Some of you have blown up a job because you are not correctable. And you got that feeling even as you're making decisions. These are bad decisions. And yet, you did it anyway. So what's wrong with you? Why would you do that? You know these things are true, and we make odd decisions all the time. So tell me if this sounds familiar to you. You're in this section of your life, and you're doing really well. You've made some choices, right? I'm going to quit doing that thing. I'm not going to drink that. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to eat that. I'm not going to look at that. I won't do it anymore. So you identified something that is bad for you bad for your family and bad for your future. And now, for a period of time, it's passed. Maybe it's a week. Maybe it's two weeks. Maybe it's a month has passed, and you're doing good. You haven't done the thing. Ten days free, right? You have your little celebration along that. I haven't done it for 15 days. You're doing well, and you are self-correcting. However, even when you're doing well, and you are correcting, there's part of you that wants to go uncorrected. And you keep thinking about it. It just keeps coming back. And then we pull this thing off. It's funny because I know that I've done it. So it's tragic because I know that I've done it. It's 13 days. I haven't done this for 13 days. So I owe myself one. Right? Have you ever said that? Why do we do that? Why would we do something when we know it hurts us and then work so hard and focus on stopping that thing because that thing hurts me? And then as a treat for doing what's right and helpful and and saving myself, as a treat, I go and do it again. 
That's not just nobody's perfect. That's not just, I made a mistake. The baby step here is to at least admit that you have a deeper problem than just mistake. Perhaps, perhaps you are a sinner. Perhaps sin is a reality, even if you want to dumb it down and just say it's a mistake. Now, this definition is not going to be theologically accurate. It's not going to be complete, okay? So don't analyze it in that way. But here's a first step kind of definition of a sinner. A sinner is somebody who knows better, but does it anyway. Anybody? Yeah. Jesus talked about sin, and he talked about sin all the time. He talked about it a, a bunch in a different kind of context. So we're not going to look at this as in the Bible says that this is what Jesus taught. Jesus is a guy, and we're going to look at Jesus, and this is some of the stuff that he taught about this topic. So look at what he said, and then you can take that, and we'll further our, uh, our journey on this. He said that something that we know that's true, and we've all experienced this, sin breaks relationship. Every broken relationship that you have ever been in has been broken by sin. Maybe your sin. Maybe their sin. Maybe you both sinned together and you broke the relationship. And when you sin, sin isolates. It is about breaking relationship. It's about pulling you out of relationship. It moves us away from relationship. It moves us away from intimacy. And we go, what happened? But, and this is the part that we have misunderstood for so long, Jesus' purpose in talking about sin was about restoration, not condemnation. And the reason we fear the word sin is so often condemnation. That has nothing to do with what Jesus was talking about. And our association with that word sin makes us uncomfortable because we fear condemnation. Who are you? How can you say that? Don't talk to me like that. I don't want to talk about sin because it makes me feel bad about myself. But Jesus said we have to talk about sin because I can't get you restored until you admit that it's not, that you're not just a mistaker. You are, in fact, a sinner. And Jesus knew that as long as you think that you are making mistakes, you will never seek the thing that ye, you need most to bring about restoration. Because if sin breaks relationships, what restores a relationship? You have a friend, okay? And this friend is 100% dead wrong, okay? And you confront him, and he says, sorry. How restored is the relationship? Okay, sorry. Is everybody going to just jump right back up to that full connection level? We're tight, we're buddies, let's hang out. It's hard to even get ourselves to say the word sorry sometimes. But once we've put that enormous effort in, is anything fixed? Why isn't that enough? They acknowledged, yes, I made a mistake. So since I made a mistake, sorry is what we do to fix that. Now, can't we just go on like it never happened? And something in you knows that no, we can't just go on because sorry doesn't restore the relationship. As long as you think that you are a mistaker, 
You will never seek forgiveness. Mistakes don't require forgiveness. The only way that the relationship is to be restored is for the offender to acknowledge that there was, there was an offense. It's not just, sorry. It's not even just, I'm sorry, right? Just the M on the front, because I can't say, I'm sorry. It's just, I'm sorry. To be restored, you have to look someone in the eye and you have to say, I am sorry. Because I was wrong. And it wasn't just a mistake because I did it on purpose. I'm sorry. That's why Jesus' teaching on this is just so brilliant. It doesn't fit into the current religious system that he was in. It didn't didn't fit into the, the pagan religions that were around him. It was new. And Jesus came along and said that your heavenly Father wants you to be restored to him. And the only way to be restored is through forgiveness. And the only way that you'll seek forgiveness is if you realize you didn't just make a mistake. It's bigger than that. That's why you need to understand that you sin. Perhaps it's even worse because this is probably not the first time. You've done it before. You keep doing it. You are a sinner. But Jesus says, no, don't freak out about that. That's not the end. It's a means to a very important end. So Jesus would teach on sin, right? And he was, it's not like things today where you're okay, you're great, and your therapist is going to help you along with this, and don't worry about how you feel bad about yourself. He would say, hey, you think you've done some bad things? Oh, you have no idea how bad you are. And I'll tell you how bad you are. And he jacked the standard up so high that everybody went, oh no, we're doomed. And once they acknowledged that they were doomed, then Jesus said, hey, I've got some great news. I'm here for the doomed people. In reality, I'm only here for the doomed people. I'm here for you because you're doomed. If you're not doomed, I'm not here for you. And if you feel doomed, it's because you are acknowledging the size of the problem. But God loves doomed people. People cannot experience the love of God until they understand that they are doomed. So Jesus taught and and he brought people to conviction so that they would understand the gravity of the situation and so that they would feel doomed. And then just before they all go crazy, start pulling off their hair and jump off a cliff, he comes rushing in and he says, but guess what? God loves doomed sinners. That's why he sent me. That's why I'm here. But you will never know me unless you acknowledge something about you. And here's how he said it. You go to Matthew chapter 5. For I tell you that unless your righteousness, and righteousness at this place, he's kind of saying the way you behave, the actions that you take, your interactions with people, basically your behavior, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. And honestly, We talk bad about Pharisees at church a lot because that's the way it comes up. But the Pharisees are the best people around, okay? They are full-time rule followers. They are paid to be good. They get get paid to stay ceremonially clean so that they could hear from God. So unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And at this point, everyone in the crowd went, 
no way, we're doomed. There's no way we're going to get to heaven. And not everyone at this time had the same view of what heaven was or hell was or anything like that, but they knew that not going to heaven was bad and going to heaven was good. And Jesus said that you are better than the best people, unless you are better than the best people that you know, you're doomed. So he goes on in verse 21, he says, you have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, jump down. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now to read this in context, Jesus is saying that if you're guilty of anger at someone, then you are guilty of murder. It's the same in the economy of God. And you will face the same judgment. So how good are you feeling about yourself now? Don't worry. It gets worse. Jesus says, you, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. <laughs> the guys are all going, honestly, Jesus. Honestly, who hasn't done that? And Jesus goes on, and he goes on. And there was no one who can escape this. They were all doomed. We are all doomed. They were all sinners. We are all sinners. He raises the bar so high that everyone's asking, what's the point of even trying? As if I'll ever be able to do that. And then he rushes in and he says, that's why I'm here. It doesn't end with sin and condemnation. It goes from sin to condemn to I need to ask for forgiveness to God forgiving me. But you can never be restored to God until you acknowledge that you need to be restored. A mistaker, they just think that they're going to self-correct, and they never get to that point. So <coughs> one day, they bring this uh, woman to Jesus, and they kind of throw her down in front of him on the ground, and she was caught in the act of adultery, not mental adultery, not metaphorical adultery. She was caught in the act, the real thing. And they say, Jesus, she deserves to be stoned to death. Well, he does his, his thing, and he kind of talks to them, and he kind of intimidates the crowd, so they pull back a little bit. And so it's now, it's just him left. And there's this woman right on the ground in front of him. That's all that's left. The other people kind of pull back, but they're still there. And he says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Here's the story, the way it's played out. He says, ma'am... You're a sinner. Everybody knows it. You just got caught. You just got brought out here. And in front of all these people right now, but looking right in her face, he says, I don't condemn you. You are a sinner. Now stop sinning. I don't condemn you. Acknowledge the need to be restored, and he will restore you. But you try to play this game where you do that little dance in the middle where it's no big deal and it's not so bad and you will never know restoration. And you keep telling yourself that you don't need to be restored and, and you rob yourself of all the freedom that's possible. So another day, Jesus is teaching and on one side are the people who are really bad. These are the people who used to say, eat, drink, and, uh, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. And when you die... You're going to go to hell, but that's cool because you know lots of fun people there, right? I've heard this sort of idea that on the other side, 
there's the, the people who were so good. It's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they had dumbed sin down so much. They believed that they were never, ever sinning. That's what they had convinced themselves of. And Jesus looks at them and he goes, neither one of these guys is getting it. So he tells three stories um, to try and help them understand. And there's the first one's about lost sheep. You probably have heard that one. And then there's one about a lost coin. And we don't really get that because it doesn't really make sense to us in our culture. And then he gets to the one that we know the best, the prodigal son. A young man comes to his dad and he says, Dad, I wish you would die so that I could have your money, but you just won't die. Uh, so let's pretend like you're dead and you just give me the inheritance now. And this is a made-up story, okay? And Jesus knows what he's doing and he brings the audience in. They know who they're siding with in this story. So the father gives the younger son the money and he goes off. He goes away and he wastes all the money and the audience is, is just angry. They're kind of nudging each other. They're going, oh man, if that was my son and if he came into my town, we'd run him out of town. We wouldn't have him around and that's what they all kind of have this. And so they're right into the story. They're feeling this tension. And then the son comes back because while he's away, he, it's finally dawned on him. I really messed up. He comes back and he, and he makes a little speech. And, and Jesus is putting these words in, his, in the mouth of this, this fictitious boy. And everybody knows that in the parable that the father is God. And the son, the son is somebody who has done things that are just so bad. So bad that there's no way that any regular father would allow that relationship to be restored. The audience is on the edge, and they are just waiting for some good, old-fashioned vengeance and punishment. That's what they want. That's the good stuff, right? Give it to them. And Jesus has the boys say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. No excuses, no stories, no justifications, no blaming, no accusing. And for someone listening, for someone listening today, you have never said those three words. I have sinned. There's, a, there's always the rest of it, the excuses and the stories and the blaming, but those three words have never come out of your mouth. And I need you to know today that there is freedom on the other side of those three words that you can't imagine. He says, Dad, I recognize that our relationship is broken. 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 I no longer have any reason to call you Father. And I understand that there is no reason for you to call me Son. This relationship is severed. And it is severed because of my sin. The next phrase in Jesus' story, this is how he tells it, but. He got through the whole story. It's all my fault. I'm a sinner, but. But the father says to his servants, he doesn't even address the son. He doesn't say, hey, thanks. I really appreciate that. We got to talk, but thanks. And here's why. In the story, the father heard those words and he knew, ah. My son is back. The son had recognized what he has got to recognize for this relationship to be restored. So, but the father says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Gives him more stuff. And he goes on and he explains, for this son of mine was dead. He 
He was never dead. Dead to me. He chose to be a part. And he is alive again. He was lost. Well, he's not really lost. He was just over there. He, but he was lost in terms of our relationship. But he's now found. So they began to celebrate. The relationship was broken. He was dead to me. He was lost to me. He was cut off from me. And now he was found. And that lost relationship, it's been relocated. The brokenness has been mended. The break has been restored. And so they began to celebrate. What are they celebrating? They celebrated the restoration of the relationship. A relationship that could not have been restored if the son hadn't finally come to his senses and recognized that I'm not just a bad money manager. I'm not just wild-hearted. I'm not just um, a bad judge of character. I'm not just enthusiastic. I'm not just a mistaker. I have sinned against heaven and against my father. And his dad says, now we can celebrate. You know what you need to know for this relationship to be restored. And that is what I'm going to do. That is what I'm going to give you. And I'm going to give it to you with joy in my heart. Let's celebrate. So when you think about Jesus, and when you consider the Christian faith, and you consider whether or not you want to hit that restart button, believe this. Acknowledging your sin is not a path that leads to condemnation. It was nothing about what Jesus was about. The recognition of sin paves the way to restoration. In our minds, we say, I'm a sinner, and then boom, the bottom just falls out, and I'm liable for everything, all that trouble, and it's going to get so much worse. But then Jesus said, no, that's when the condemnation is over. I don't know where you got that other teaching, but it didn't come from me. You have been separated. You separated yourself from God, but he loves you. And the only way back is to quit making these silly excuses. Just look at me and say, I have sinned. And as soon as you do, I'm going to give you what a mistaker never asks for. I'm going to give you forgiveness. I'm going to restore you to me. We can get back to doing this whole into one thing. And I don't know what you think about Jesus or what you believe about him, but today, remember that Jesus made it clear that it was not about condemnation. He is about restoration. You are not a mistaker. Jesus says you are a sinner who needs to be forgiven. I am a sinner who needs to be forgiven. And you didn't need this message today to find out that you have a problem that's deeper than a mistake every once in a while. God is waiting to celebrate. He will celebrate when you come back to him and you can't come back as a mistaker. You have to come back as a full-blown sinner. Then Jesus can say to you, stop sinning. It's bad for you. Stop hurting yourself. But I don't condemn you. And I'm waiting to restore you. Push the pause button on this for now. And we're going to pick this up next week.
Kind Father, thank you. Thank you again for the grace that you have shown to us, this forgiveness that you offer to us. It's standing there waiting for us simply to come and acknowledge what we already know is true. I've got problems that are bigger than just every once in a while. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move today, that you would speak and you would take the truth of what, what you are and what you are about and drive that inside of us. Start pulling us towards you more. It doesn't need to end today, but you just keep working. You keep working and calling us to you, promising us that relationship that we feel like is impossible. It doesn't even make a difference because we are too used to saying it's just a mistake. We have never come to the place where we acknowledge that we've got a deep, deep problem and our only hope, the only solution is you. Thanks for your gift to us today. May we receive it well. May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Be blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. It's better when you're here. It's better when we're together. Thanks for being part of us. Thanks for worshiping with us today. Thanks for bringing this to life again. Remember, the church is not this place where we meet. The church is you, where you go, and what you take with you. So please, this week, don't forget to take it with you. Don't forget to take Jesus with you and share him with somebody else this week in some way, in some kindness that you can offer. Remember, we are Christ-centered. We are spirit-empowered, and we are mission-focused. And we are to be on mission, everyone, everywhere, all the time. 